Hi there, and welcome back to the Energy Sector Heroes podcast. My name is Michelle Fraser, and every week I will speak with incredible people who share their lessons, experiences, and stories from their time spent in the energy sector. Hi there, and welcome back again to this week's episode. If you're new to the show, then please take a second to subscribe and even consider sharing the show with just one other person. This week, I am joined by Andy Samuel, CBE, which is actually quite exciting, actually. Andy, would you like to introduce yourself, please? Yeah, hi, Michelle, and uh, great to be here today. So after uh, quite a long career in the energy industry, 20 years with a company called BG Group, various executive levels, and then uh, 10 years with the, sorry, eight years with the North Sea Transition Authority as the uh, the first chief executive, I um, have been working part-time now for this year forming a portfolio so i'm an executive coach coaching uh, various individuals i'm an advisor to a couple of companies like sumitomo and x academy and also on a couple of uh, boards as a non-executive director excellent so how did you get started in the energy sector so i did a, a degree in earth sciences which i absolutely loved and that led to doing a PhD in uh, geology. And as part of that, I was talking at various conferences and a company called, uh, at the time it was British Gas, then became BG Group. The head geologist really liked one of my presentations. So he encouraged me to apply to their graduate development scheme. In the end, I actually did a, a year's postdoc sponsored by BG Group and then applied to their graduate scheme and was successful. And that was the start of my career in the uh, the energy industry, uh, which, like I say, I did for 20 years. It wasn't particularly planned. It was quite late that I decided I wanted to to, to go down that route, um, but I loved it. And uh, and I found through my career, it was, it was always learning and kind of broadening. I remember BG thought I was pretty good as an explorationist and a geologist, but I was interested in the kind of broader aspects of the business, the operations, the commercial, how everything integrated. So I didn't want to be pigeonholed. And the jobs I really enjoyed were, were broader, asset management and the like, and uh, some really wonderful opportunities through that. Quite an international career had postings in places like Egypt, where I went with my wife for three years, Trinidad and Tobago and Pittsburgh. And again, love that that aspect of the industry. Okay. So you did your PhD. Did Because I've talked to quite a several people that have done their PhD. Do you think that your PhD has been valuable in your career? Yeah, definitely. It was It was good fun. But I also learned a lot about leadership. It was in a very remote part of the uh, the western uh, Sumatran forearms, so some islands to the west of Sumatra, which at the time were pretty much off the radar, very remote. And I'd go out there for months at a time, exploring and you know mapping the geology. And you learn a lot about kind of leadership very early when you're leading a small team, venturing out into the, the rainforest for weeks at a time. And yeah, it was it was brilliant had a had a really good supervisor and then of course the you know, the discipline of writing up your own you know extensive thesis doing primary research was fantastic so i think if people have a an inkling you know if their heart is calling them to do it 
I would I would definitely consider it, but it's not something to be taken lightly. It's it's a lot of work. I did hear that that it was a lot of work. You did hear that actually. Mm-hmm. But it's worth it then. Well, I would say to people, ask you know what 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 is your heart's desire? What what's really calling you? I, it, it clearly wouldn't be for a lot of people, but if for those who are interested, then uh, it can be a wonderful experience. Okay, excellent. Who was your role model during your career and why did you find them inspirational? So I don't think I've ever really had a single role model. What I have benefited from a lot through my career, pretty much from when I was first made a team leader, which was earlier in my career than I asked for and was expecting. So I kind of felt like I was thrown in the deep end a bit, but my supervisors obviously saw something in my leadership. But they also offered me the opportunity to have a coach. And I teamed up with a wonderful lady, Elaine, and she has been my coach from then really till now. And that's been invaluable, actually, because I think if you're going to progress and test yourself and take on challenging you know, roles and learn and grow, there are times when you know I call them head exploding moments when you're you're really in the deep end and you're maybe struggling a bit and just talking through those situations with a coach uh, who's guiding you to find your own solutions but with some uh, encouragement and compassion certainly I found super helpful and that's partly why I've become a, an executive coach myself to kind of share back and, and help others in a way that I was helped through my career. Okay, so what has been the most valuable thing that she taught you? Well, I, coaching isn't really, it's not really teaching. It's because like the, the, the idea is that we all have the answers within ourselves. And I truly believe that. And it's a good coach just helps you think through and come up with your own solutions. But so, for example, things like resilience, you know, it is quite hard sometimes to get perspective. And when one's facing a really challenging situation, like, for example, when I was heading up our uh, you know, North American uh, gas operation for in a joint venture, and I had to shut in 90% of the production. Quite rightly, I felt over a safety issue, but I didn't have the full support of my board and was under a lot of pressure, nor indeed actually some of my team. Talking through situations like that and recognizing that the decision I made was consistent with my values, ultimately, I believed good and you know, in the best interests of the company, and certainly in the best interest of employees, and you know, I would be judged by that. And and kind of learning resilience, you know, that that's an example. I remember at the time that was that was difficult, and it was great to talk it through with Elaine as a coach. Okay, excellent. So, have you had any challenges throughout your career? And what have you learned from, well, how have you handled them? So I think plenty of, you know, I've just given one example of, uh, you know, shutting in a large, large part of the company's production. But um, I, I learned, you know, fairly early on that uh, to be careful how we label things. Is a challenge really a challenge or is it, a, is it an opportunity? How often have you interviewed someone who said this was difficult. But when I look back five years later, I was tremendously grateful for that. I learned a lot or it, you know, took me on this path that so I I think we need to be careful how we label things. And yes, I've had what people might term, you know, testing circumstances, but that's where you learn. That's where you grow. That's where you can 
bring out the best in your own leadership and and your your team. The start of the uh, the formation of the oil and gas authority. I think it's fair to say that there were some in industry who were very skeptical about what we were doing and almost waiting for us to fail. And when we when we launched a consultation on our strategy, which was you know actually quite an important document for industry with legally binding requirements, there were a number in industry who very much went into lobby mode because there were there were aspects in there that they were worried about. We felt you know unduly. And and that was very challenging when we were getting calls from people within number 10 saying, what are you doing winding up this company? And we had to explain, well, we're not winding up anyone. We're actually just working in the national interest and we believe the interest of the uh, uh, the industry as well and explaining. But, you know, um, lobbying can be quite a difficult thing to deal with. Interestingly, the concerns that industry had never came never came to bear and those same people who uh lobbied one way then lobbied differently a few years later so you learn again to to be true to your values and do what you think's right you can't keep everyone happy and i think as long as you're clear in what your values and your mission are you're going to be on the right path but recognize that's not always going to be the most popular path because you were saying that not everybody is going to be happy with the decision that you make how do you even start to deal with that? So what we, if we take what I think we did very well in the North Sea Transition Authority is we, we, we always listened. So, you know, always wanted to hear everyone's view and the more diverse the view, the better. So very important that everyone's heard. But then ultimately, you know, we had a job to do. We had an authority and, and we had to make, we had to take decisions. My approach would be to be, very listen, be very collaborative, and something important like that. Of course, I took it to my board. So get the backing of your whole board, and that you know, make sure it's properly debated. Your decisions looked at carefully. But once you've made it, move on. Now, of course, if it turns out you've made a very bad decision, you can put your hands up with humility and course correct. And there's nothing wrong with that either. So being agile and learning. But yes, particularly as a regulator, which effectively is, you know, what what we were for part of what we did. We we also like to think of ourselves as a value creator. But you, you're not there to win a popularity contest. You've got a job to do. We were working in the national interest. Okay, so f- what would you do if the if your board didn't support your decision? Then I would respect the board. I mean, th- that's why you have a board. So we we had a clear accountability framework and many decisions were delegated to myself and my leadership team, and that's fine. But if it was a a matter that was for the board, then that is for the whole board. Now, as it happened, I can't think of a circumstance where that arose, that the board didn't back where I was coming from. Now, there were some matters, though, that we took to the board where I actually went in without a fixed view because they were quite complex. And I was genuinely very interested to hear the debate through the whole board and see where we landed. And I think that's good as well. Okay, excellent. Yeah, you were saying before that you've had challenges, as everybody does in their career, and you look back to them with fond memories, because you probably, like everybody, you've learned a lot from them. But have you, have you ever been able to take something quite seriously that's gone wrong and turned it into a win-win situation? 
so something that came to my mind was like most companies when i was at bg group we had the uh the annual kind of assessment and you were put into a kind of you know box from one to five or whatever that kind of affected you know um your your remuneration bonus and the like and i think it's fair to say through my career i tended to normally be in fairly high boxes but one year i felt for matters outside of my control in fact we had shut down some platforms for asset integrity issues that were long in the making you know years of under investment prior to me being the uh, the asset manager and i think we made the right call but of course it hit our production hit our targets and because of that my performance was deemed you know a uh, middle middle of the road and i felt that was uh, a little bit unfair since we'd actually probably worked harder that year than ever to uh, to make the right decision but then also shut the platforms down and rectify the issues quickly and safely and get them back up and running but such is life but i think because of the way i felt i was dealt with that was the first time i was open to offers from outside the company you know when headhunters call and the like normally i just wasn't interested but uh when the calls came i actually thought i'll listen to this and one of them was around the the chief executive role of the uh at the time the oil and gas authority and i'm very grateful i took that call and you know put my name into the hat and uh went down that route so that the point here is you know when a difficult situation arises or something that triggers you recognize that it could could actually be a great opportunity i think with industry again when working with the nsta there were many times when we had some you know quite difficult conversations that we could then get into a creative mode you know if you can actually despite the difficulty actually still listen to each other that's often where rather than ending up kind of butting heads you find that neither of you have the complete picture and when you get your heads together you can actually go in a a whole kind of new third direction that creates more value for everyone so really enjoyed those kind of things one of the things we did a lot was trying to get different players to collaborate so that people could create more value if they could see the whole system so if you're looking say at a development if you get two or three developments sharing infrastructure developing together that's how you can actually make the economics more attractive so those kind of things which are quite hard to achieve can be very very rewarding when you get it right when we look to the energy transition now that power of collaboration and integration is only going to become more and more important so i think we've kind of developed a culture and a muscle that hopefully will serve the industry well going forward but none of this is easy and it really takes great leadership and great behaviors Okay, but getting a few companies to work on one project, that must be quite hard, considering if I could say that they might consider themselves maybe competitors against each other. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the interesting things about this industry. I mean, it it happens the whole time, obviously, through joint ventures. So it's rare that a company will develop, a, say, a substantial gas field on their own. You know, they form a joint venture partnership but what i'm talking about then is getting two or three different joint venture partnerships to then collaborate so that's a whole different level of collaboration and even better to collaborate with the supply chain maybe through a kind of bonus malice type agreement so that there everyone has a skin in the game pointing in the same direction for the shared success of this this larger venture that's when i think magic happens how do you do that I think forming really good relationships across all of those parties and developing trust. 
you know, without trust, it's almost impossible to do great things, I believe. Okay. So how do you create the trust in these companies to get them to to work together? Yeah. So like I say, I think relationships are, are at the heart of it. With good relationships, a lot more becomes possible. We also had a, you know, a legitimate regulatory role. And we did find at times that, you know, we would start off using, let's say, our soft influencing powers. But if they were not sufficient for whatever reason, then we could use a, you know, a harder edge and actually say, well, I'm sorry, but we're not going to allow you to develop this field in your own narrow way. You actually have to collaborate with this other field or or else neither are going to go ahead. So actually sometimes being quite clear and setting boundaries can drive the kind of innovation you want as well. Um, but that's never where we started. But, but in some instances, that's actually where we ended up. And, and that's fine as well. Okay, that sounds amazing. So what is your zone of genius? I'm sure you must have many. Uh, <laughs> so I, I, I think we all, I think everyone has strengths. And I think a lovely thing is to kind of identify them and end up in a role where you can really play to them. When I coach people, I'm very interested in understanding what are their strengths and, you know, are they are they shining in their current role? One of the reasons I really enjoyed the, uh, you know, my last big role in industry and my, you know, last big role in government, where I, I felt they did play to my strengths and particularly leadership. I loved leading, you know, relatively large teams, loved the dynamics, serving, you know, servant leadership, I guess, would be my model of leadership tuning into the the needs of the organization, trying to create a culture where everyone can shine and uh, be themselves, be really inclusive. And a, a lot of that, I think, comes simply from listening and actually you know, caring for your people. It's kind of strange, but some leaders seem to think that, you know, driving people hard and being overly demanding is a route to success. But actually, if you if you treat people well and are really interested in them, they repay your kindness through just doing great work. You, know, you rarely have to manage performance because people want to do a great job if they're well-treated, if they're included, if they're respected. And if you have a good mission, you know, if you're clear what you're trying to do, if the purpose of your organization. So you know, I think another strength of mine is helping get clear. What are we trying to do? Do we have a clear vision? Do we have a clear strategy? Is it exciting? And we changed, you know, we changed our, uh, or we added to our mission from the OJ to become the NSTA. We had, we added in the whole bit around the energy transition. And many of my team found that tremendously energizing. You know, we were, we were more than just security or supply. We were all around the, the climate emergency and trying to help, help the North Sea be at the forefront of that really innovative, creative. So I think another another strength of mine or something I certainly enjoy is creativity and innovation. You know, I think leaders create creates a new future, a, a future that people want to step into and follow. So those are the kind of things I, I've really enjoyed. And and now I, I really enjoy helping others find their own strengths and uh, get into their own flow and, and hopefully be happy and fulfilled at work. Okay, but how would you do that? How do you, how would you be able to help people get into their own flow at work? So I think through asking very open questions, you know, when are you at your best? Um, what do you really enjoy? What makes your heart sing? You know, wh when are you almost lost in the joy of work? 
and then understanding when people are not in flow. I mean, regrettably, these days, uh, more and more people seem to be suffering burnout. You know, it's terrible, but the uh, demands and the pace and the some of the culture that people are working at is is really quite poor. And that that's such a shame. It's such a lost opportunity. And that's why I'm very interested in working, helping leaders create, you know, better cultures, because it doesn't need to be like that. There's a lovely book. I was on a uh, leadership roundtable with a guy called Bob Chapman, who has been the chief exec of a very large U.S. corporation for about 30 years and been immensely successful. And the book's called Everybody Matters. And that that really, it kind of confirmed what I've been trying to do. And, and I, and it was lovely to talk to Bob. And, and but we, you know, we had this conversation. Why don't more people lead like this? Because it, it's natural, it's fun, and and people like it. But the prevailing culture seems to be to strive harder, um, and treat people almost as a commodity, rather than you know as unique individuals that like to be listened to, respected, heard, included, and all and all of that. But do you really think it's still like that? Because I remember when I started off as a young engineer, that it was more like that back about 20, 25 years ago. But I feel like sometimes it's changed. I think it's definitely a lot better, but I think there's still a long way to go. And, you know, I think it still can be quite a macho culture. So I think we've got a long way to go still on inclusion and diversity. But absolutely we should celebrate the strides that have been made and there are some brilliant companies i i work with x academy part of exodus and the the culture there and i think is 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 fantastic and it's probably no coincidence that their their gender diversity is 50 50. you know they're doing a lot of things brilliantly and i and i love that but like i say some people i meet and coach um are already suffering in quite difficult cultures. So that you know, there's always an opportunity to improve there, isn't there? That is. So do you have any advice to anybody that may be experiencing burnout? I, I, it, it's serious. There was, there was a paper by McKinsey's that came in my inbox literally a few days ago, and I think that was saying about 40% of executives experience it. And, and, and there can be some pretty you know, bad health consequences, obviously mental health, potentially depression. So the, this is something to take very seriously. So I would put up your hand and ask for help, someone you trust or a coach, and just, you know, acknowledge that there's something to address. It's not a sign of weakness. It's quite quite the opposite. It's a sign of strength. And there are, there are many ways of getting help and, and being helped through that and strategies to, to help cope. Ultimately, if the culture is so toxic, though, I think the best thing is, if you can, find a, find an alternative role and get out of that culture. But in many cases, there are strategies that will uh, you, you don't need to kind of change career or change job. There are strategies to, to help cope with it. Okay, but I was going to ask you, I was going to ask you a couple of questions. Do you think that, because most companies, some, I might even say, some companies they still have there is still toxic environments mm-hmm. to some degree. Mm-hmm. So it's really do you really think that the grass is greener on the other side if you were gonna leave? So good question. So you you would want to do your due diligence and yeah, you don't want to jump out of the frying pan into the fire, let's say. 
But no, there are some great companies and uh, no doubt about it. And I think above all else, you know, um, individual leaders can make a huge difference. Again, studies show that it's often the quality of your individual line manager that can really make a difference to your well-being at work. So if you're going for an interview, it's a two-way thing. And if you're if you find you're getting on well with your line manager, like their values, like their style, that's fantastic. An old colleague of mine um, who who left the NSTA to pursue a different career was telling me that he loved the interview he had, where the line manager said, um, "You know, what what's on your reading list? You know, um, what 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 gives you joy? Kind of questions like that that show that they really cared." about this individual as this person as an individual, I think is a very, very good sign. Whereas if you're just asked about how you can about perform and add to the bottom line, that may be a sign that they're less interested in you as a person and more as a commodity. So I think those are the kind of cultural clues and cues that I would be looking out for, but it's not easy. But like I say, that's last resort. In many cases, there are you know adjustments that one can make within the workplace that can make one's uh, work and the kind of men- mental well-being a, a lot better. But I think it's great that we're talking about things like mental health because, you know, a few years ago it was hardly on the radar, whereas now I think it's it's acknowledged as a very important topic that, that's in the mainstream. I agree, actually. It was never really talked about even just a few years ago. Yeah. So you've had an amazing career and you still have a you're still having an amazing career because you're involved in in a lot of different activities what has been your most enjoyable role what what i've loved is what i've had a really good leadership team i've loved i've loved the the big leadership roles but it's being with the team i used to love things like the the monthly meetings when we'd get together and just be creative. And so definitely, um, I, I felt really privileged to, to lead the North Sea Transition Authority. And we just had a, an absolutely outstanding set of people that, that made it a joy to, a joy to lead. And, and likewise, my previous role in industry. And I was very lucky. In fact, my last three big roles, I was blessed to have the support of a brilliant, brilliant HR directors who helped me form the teams, help form the culture. And, and that makes a huge difference, I have to say. So for me, not one individual role, but that culture of having a, a good team. And people used to say, it seems unusual, but everyone's kind of on the same side. No internal politics. People genuinely wanting to do the best for the organization. That, that for me, was always a, a lovely sign. So it's been amazing that you've worked in the, for the North Sea Transition Authority. That would be a challenging role, wouldn't it? Yeah, it it was. I mean, that that was part of the the attraction, the the kind of diversity of stakeholders that we would interact with on a daily, weekly base, basis was was amazing. You know, one minute you'd be uh, chairing a meeting with the Secretary of State, or even at times a Prime Minister. Other times. I'd be listening to you know new starters in the industry wanting to get their per- perception of where the industry was going. We'd be dealing with managing directors of big oil companies. I used to find the the trade unions exceptionally helpful to get their view of what you know what's happening in the workforce. All of the kind of complexity I've kind of shared around trying to get people to collaborate. It was brilliant. I loved you know no day felt like the same. You never quite knew what was around the corner, 
the politics was very interesting, the policy side, but the opportunity to really make a difference for the nation was was an absolute privilege. Okay. Did you get involved in the net zero? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's why we changed the organization from the Oil and Gas Authority to the North Sea Transition Authority. I personally really tuned into the climate crisis back in 2017, 2018, when you know people like Greta Thunberg were quite rightly highlighting the gravity of the situation and it really got me thinking about the the role of the oil and gas industry through the transition and and commissioned a small study that became quite a large study it was called the energy integration study where we actually realized that the north sea could provide a lot of the solution rather than just the problem with 60% of the uk's carbon abatement requirements serviced just through the north sea a lot of that through carbon storage, but also, also of course, things like new, new technologies like offshore wind. So it really took us from a you know traditional oil and gas regulator into much more the whole energy transition, and that's become or has remained a fascination for me since. And you know the work I now do with industry is all around the energy transition because I think it's it's so so complex but full of so much opportunity, and there's such investment required. You know, our numbers that we worked with industry were that £220 billion worth of investment required out to 2030 in the North Sea alone. So this is quite staggering. So a lot to kind of think through. And and I loved it. Okay. So what challenges do you you see coming ahead for the industry to to reach their net zero emissions? They're they're, they're, they're massive. I mean, this is is a whole kind of reimagination of an industry. And we used to talk about the tripartite relationship. So when you, which worked very well, when you had that trust between industry, government, and the regulator, or in this case now, regulators, that's where great things can happen. No one can do it on its own. And that's even more true for this big transition. You know, how do you reimagine a system that was set up for oil and gas to now deal with things like carbon storage and hydrogen, using in many cases the same skills, in some cases the same pipelines and assets. How do you actually transform a regulatory system so it can work much quicker and across a whole range of new sectors? You'll probably be familiar with some of the problems facing offshore wind at the moment. You know, the price through the the contracts for difference, the the length of time it takes to do the planning and permitting, how does that whole system get transformed? How do you get the investment you required and the the certainty that investors require when there has been such political turmoil over, you know, over the last few years with so many changes of prime minister and ministers and secretaries of state? But you know, without that trust and belief in the system, it's we're not going to get that two hundred twenty billion of investment. How do you get people to believe that the oil and gas industry can be part of the solution and not just the problem. And I think the answer to that is the oil and the industry showing that it's moving in the right direction, getting on with things like carbon capture projects at pace, using our skills to uh, to do the storage, where the the North Sea is almost uniquely placed to, you know, provide a lot of the storage, not just for the UK, but Europe. So there's an awful lot to play for, but it's um it is it is a monumental transformation required no it is actually do you but do you think that the oil industry because we're always the oil industry is always seen just now anyway as we're the bad guys 
Do you really think that we could be part of the solution? Well, what I know is that there are many brilliant people in the industry, and I, and I meet with them frequently, I listen to them, I hear their ideas, I share the same vision. Many people want to be part of that solution. I do think we need the very best leadership at the top of some of these companies. And there are some question marks. I won't name any individual companies, but there are some question marks as companies appear to maybe uh, retreat from some of the uh, the promises they have made in the past and, and in cases still carry on with greenwashing. And that that erodes trust. And quite rightly, the NGOs and others call them to account on that. It doesn't help that the debate becomes so polarized. You know, this is complex and it can't be simplified to a few sound bites. You know, this is a big transformation, but I think it's best got there with people working together. But we do need to see people invest in the new stuff. And I'm not personally a fan of just the the old narrative of maxing out oil and gas. And I'm I'm more a fan of listening to people like the Climate Change Committee, who have analyzed this in great detail, recognized it's difficult, but come out with their very clear recommendations. But do you think there is there is still a resistance to change though, to how we used to do it, to maybe maybe moving forward? Yes, absolutely. I mean, change is difficult. And that's something as a coach I'm used to helping with people with. It's often, you know, one of the key things that coaches do because it is it is very hard. Uh, it's hard for individuals and it's even harder for whole companies or uh, whole industries. And I think, you know, what 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 is good though is we do see disruptors and we do see change agents within the system. I'm a big fan of kind of calling out positive examples when I see them. So, you know, what last year, one of my uh, more enjoyable days was was a, a trip. I, w- I went to the Hynet uh, system, which is Liverpool Bay and Northern Wales, kind of carbon capture and hydrogen system with ENI and progressive energy, both of whom were showing outstanding leadership with their kind of vision for a transformation of that, that ecosystem. And, and it's very much gaining traction supported by the government under the track one cluster and and i think that will go ahead and that will be a visible demonstration of, of the change that is possible and that's come about from some really good leadership in those two companies backed up i think with great leadership in, in other parts of the system including my old organization the nsda which awarded the the carbon licenses so yes i think there are some more and more really positive examples but we shouldn't you know, we shouldn't uh, hide the fact that this is difficult. And I think it really helps if people who want the change in these organizations can be vocal about that, because, you know, then the message will get through to leaders. I know of some very talented people who regrettably have left the industry because they've got very frustrated that the change has been too slow for their liking. Okay. But with the changes changes becoming so slow, do you think I was going to ask you, do you think that we'll meet our targets? It depends which targets you mean. And you know, one of the one of the complexities here is no one can do it on its own. So we need to be careful where we point fingers. So for example, industry might say, well, we want to go quicker on, let's say, carbon storage, but we're waiting on this part of the government system to give us the green light or the CFD or the so that's why I'm such a fan of everyone working together and actually understanding what are the barriers and systematically knocking them down. And that's what great leaders do. I think 
what we don't what rarely helps is is kind of judging people overly or, or painting things black and white when it's often a bit more complex i think most people get up in the day and actually want to do a great job we may need even larger systematic change because i know some chief execs probably want to go further and faster but their investors their shareholders could be the problem and you know the the Ultimately, there are kind of big questions like that to be addressed. Okay, because our shareholders would would maybe be resistant to change because it's something new and unknown that they're going into. Or you know, with current relatively high commodity prices, they're just looking at short term profit versus long term value creation, or what's really sustainable. Yeah, you know, there are there are there are things built into the current system that that are probably not healthy for the kind of sustainable future I would love to see. So there are kind of some quite big questions to be addressed. And there's been some great work, you know, COP26, there was a lot of talk around the kind of whole new financial system. And, you know, I'm hopeful that it's starting to change, but let's, let's not kind of hide the fact that the, the, the climate crisis is deepening. You know, it's almost hard as we sit here today to keep track of how many uh, countries just in the last couple of weeks have suffered either horrific floods leading to substantial loss of life or horrific fires. You know, this is unprecedented and it's only going to get worse. It's going to get more political. And, you know, I think the industry really needs to to do everything it can to play its part in solving this. No, I do agree, actually. We are saying before that... A change in government can sometimes hinder the progress into your net zero. Is that really true? I didn't think that would that would kind of make any. I don't think I wasn't saying a change in government. I think what I said is that there's been massive changes in personnel. So as an example, I had ten energy ministers within a course of eight years, all under the same government. But you wouldn't in industry have 10 chief execs of a, a major corporation or, or that that would be seen as rather unusual let's say you know these are quite complex matters and you know great even great people take a bit of time to get up to speed and yeah so yeah there are things in the system that i don't think always help i think it's fair to say okay so how would you make changes so everything move, run more smoothly so we could be working together to to achieve one goal? So, that, 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 that's a big question, and it depends on what level. But if we're talking about the whole system transformation, I'm a big fan of some of these things taking out of the kind of shorter-term political cycle because this kind of transformation needs to be held over decades plus you know it's it's not going to work in a four to five year electrical cycle i'm a huge fan of the use of things like citizens assemblies the climate change committee trialed this and they got representative cross-section from across the uk uh, of the population who over a series of weekends listened to world experts on some of these kind of matters were well informed and then were asked to form their own views and they came up with some excellent recommendations so for example on frequent flying their recommendation was it's probably reasonable that you know each person enjoys one low cost flight a year let's say for their summer holiday or whatever but beyond that that's not sustainable so if they want to fly more than that or business wants to do multiple business trips 
of course you can do it, but you should be paying the full cost, including the externalities, the carbon price, all the other things that come into that. I think that's a very good recommendation. And that came from people. It's, by the way, very similar to what the Climate Change Committee would suggest themselves. So I think there's wisdom when people are properly engaged. And then I think politicians could take some of that and say, well, this is this has come from that group. And we think this is going to be good policy and it should be non-political. So that's the kind of thing I think could really help. But it's not it's, it's not mainstream, clearly. By, by any means. And uh, and some people would probably think it's crazy from what I've seen that that, that offers a potential way forward. Why would some people think that that was crazy? Well, if you're a minister, you're giving away a degree of control. You know, ministers have immense power, actually. And obviously, some enjoy that. And, you know, so it's a very different style of leadership. It's the kind of leadership I like, that deep listening, engagement, but you're giving away control, and that can be a very uncomfortable place for some people. Why is it a different type of leadership? I th- because, well, I would suggest that the Western paradigm is command and control. It's not so much the kind of leadership I think we've been talking about, servant leadership, listening, caring. So, But, you know, there, there are, you know, we're polarizing something, and there are many great ministers who do listen deeply and care. And there are times, if you're in a real crisis, command and control can be very, very important. So I don't want to kind of paint things as black and white. You know, I think one needs to look at what what will best serve the situation and be flexible in your leadership. But generally, I'd suggest that listening is a very good place to start. There is always there is always wisdom in people and the system. And if one can put aside one's own preconceptions and listen with curiosity, it often takes one to, to a very good place. No, I agree. I agree. I'm going to ask you one final question. If you could turn back time, what would you change? I think I think the one thing I've learned and I'm still working on is uh, not to take life too seriously. It's very easy to uh, think that, you know, things are more important perhaps than they are. And I think actually being very professional, but keeping a sense of humour, keeping a perspective, keeping a lightness, having a bit of a laugh with colleagues is a brilliant thing. And there are times in my career when I think I probably took things more seriously than they deserved. But I was always doing my best and we we live and learn and get wiser over time. It's an amazing answer, actually. Okay, that's all the questions I have today. I would like to thank Andy for your time. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening and see you next week. That brings us to the end of another episode. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I'd like to gently encourage you to leave a five-star rating wherever you listen to podcasts and share the show with another person. You can also follow me on LinkedIn or via my website, www.michellefraserconsultancy.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.